Hey, Natalie. Hey, Raph. How's it going? Pretty awesome. How about you? I'm good. I have a funny story. Yeah. You ready? So my oldest child, who is the same age as your child, Bintu, they're the same age, and he just started working at a pizza shop. And I was asking him about work, and I was asking him, you know, what are the most popular pizzas? So he was telling me about the most popular toppings, and I said, hey, so my boss, Raph, thinks there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who like pineapple on their pizza and people who are wrong. And my child, who's very soft-spoken, he's like, no, Raph is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't think there are two kinds of people in the world? (laughs) (laughs) He was saying that um, he was like, hot pineapple is gross and it's really slippery. I guess when they're trying to put it on the pizza, he's like, it's really slippery. I hate pineapple on pizza. Anyway, I we just had a good laugh. We had a good laugh um, on your account. <laughs> uh, it's funny how these such trivial things can be, you know, so divisive. And, and I know that it's always in a good-natured way. I, I think it's always in a good-natured way when people talk about, you know, coffee versus tea, dogs versus cats, you know, pineapple versus no pineapple on the pizza, et cetera. But it's, it's, it's fascinating to me how we... People have such sort of strongly held opinions, including me, about about these things. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in the Pilates world, right? Classical versus contemporary, neutral versus imprint. Yeah. Lots of passion. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, connoisseur. We become connoisseurs. Um, so today we're going to talk about paddling your canoe down the river and not rushing from one side of the stream to the other side of the stream to, to find the middle between, uh, well, you, you'd share the metaphor because it's your, it's your metaphor and I think you, you expressed it better than I'm going to. So, yeah. Sure. And I can't take credit for this. It's an image that you can probably Google um, and is imagine a river and there's a woman in a canoe in the middle of the river. And she, the river is, um, has two banks. On one side, the bank is called rigidity. And on the other side, the bank is called um, chaos. And so in, in this woman is, has this peaceful look on her face. And she's just canoeing down the river. And she's not bumping into rigidity. And she's not bumping into chaos. And I love this metaphor for so many reasons. It is kind of the guiding principle in everything in my life. I don't obviously nail it <laughs> in most areas of my life, but that's the goal is to straddle and find that balance between rigidity and chaos. And that could be true for relationships. It could be true for your job. I mean, and in the Pilates world, it could be true with, how you manage a class, how you teach a class. Mm, mm. And I would, I mean, what jumps into my mind as you uh, share that is I think over overall in the Pilates world, we live mostly on the rigidity bank of the river. Or, or if you're a brand new teacher or a teacher in training, you might still be butting up against chaos. Right. So... Yeah, so the the way the the how we got into this conversation before we started the the recording was we're talking about the the kind of the the 
I guess it's kind of a threshold point or the point where we see or where you see in particular the transformation from, uh, you know, within our students from about week 12 to week 15, somewhere in there of our 20-week program, where they go from more rigid to this more kind of flexible, uh, being more present, I think, when they're teaching. And, and it, yeah, so, so talk me through your observation there. I mean, people come into the program week zero, they're kind of wide-eyed, fearful, anxious, will I be good enough, um, terrified of getting up in front of a group to teach. Uh, and then, you know, at week 20, they graduate, they're confident, they're like, I've already been teaching for four weeks, my classes are waitlisted, you know, like I feel awesome. And, and that's, it's not a linear process where they just get sort of 5% better every week for 20 weeks and then they're at a hundred percent. It's, it's, there seems to be some kind of threshold somewhere around week 12 to 15 where they kind of click over and, and kind of get it in, you know? Yeah. So tell tell us about that. It's a, it's such a privilege for me to be able to witness it. And it's my favorite thing to do is to be able to watch them in week zero. And then, so for instance, I was telling you today before we got started, um, I taught two tutorials today. One was a week 15 and one was a week 20. So at Breathe, we have three cohorts running at the same time. And one of the cohorts, let's shout out to the May cohort they are graduating this week. This is week 20 for them. So they've been with us for 21 weeks in total. And, you know, they're, some of them have jobs already. A lot of them are um, really thinking about what it is they want to do with this new skill that they have. And it's just a privilege to be able to send them off, kick them out of the breathe nest and watch them spread their wings and fly. Uh, but week 15, historically, is my favorite week in the course because around week 12 to 15, usually by the time our students hit week 15, which is about four months into the course, they look and feel just like real Pilates teachers. They have a confidence and a poise about them. Um, they feel like, the way that I describe it is like, you know, if you buy a shoe, and the first month or two that you're wearing it, like it doesn't feel right. Like you can feel all the places that it's pinching at you or rubbing up against you wrong. But then after a while, the more you wear it, the, the better it feels and you've broken it in. And in that way, I see week 15 as like most of them, if not all of them, have kind of broken in to their teaching. And they are, they're just... They're just teachers. I want to be in their classes. They're having a good time. They're not thinking about what words are coming up next. Like sometimes when you're looking at people, when I watch my uh, my students, especially in the earlier uh, weeks where they're still trying to find their words, they're still concerned about what's going to happen next. So they're thinking in the future. You know, they're cueing an exercise, but only half of their brain is with their clients. The other half of their brain is thinking into the future. They're not fully present. So they miss things, right? They are missing out on an opportunity to help a client get more success in an exercise or a movement. They miss out on 
a client who is doing something completely different than what everybody else is doing. And they just can't do that. They don't have the mental resources for that. But around week 15, they're just really feeling their way. They're not fully formed. They're still trying to find their voice and their style. But they've done all of the the work of the, you know, just the mechanics of teaching. And really, now they can really start to figure out, who am I? Where is my place in the Pilates world? How do I want to teach my classes? And I'm beginning to see that. So week 15 is really magical to me. And um, just being able to see them not be so nervous and kind of enjoy themselves and completely ignore me um, and just be in their element, it's just really special. And um, I really hope for that for everybody who is listening to this, especially for those um, listeners who are still feeling really stressed out about teaching. I know I was that, that instructor for a really long time. Mm. Or even feel just feeling stuck. You know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. a, a metaphor that I've uh, used to think about this sort of journey for a while is learning to drive. And when when you first learn to drive, you're very, very focused on inside the car. You're thinking about the gear shift and the clutch and the accelerator and the brake and the turn signal and the, you know, like you, you're very focused on on the the individual movements of each hand and foot and, and all of that stuff. And, and, you know, this is when you're kind of jerkily, you know, driving at 10 miles an hour around the local supermarket car park. Um, and as you progress in skill and those movements become more automatic, you actually stop focusing on what your hands and feet are doing and you start focusing on what's happening outside the vehicle and you start to look ahead at the traffic and, and you know, think about when you want to change lanes and, you know, oh, there's a turn coming up ahead or, or whatever. And so you actually, your focus shifts from being about the mechanics of what you're doing to the, the intention of where you want to go and I think that metaphor works really well with Pilates, where we see that shift from the mechanics of like, which words do I use and how many springs am I going to tell them for this next exercise? And uh, what if Mary can't get her foot into the strap? Um, you know, uh, and we actually shift from those sort of more mechanical considerations to like, okay, let's look around the room and see like, uh, who's struggling with this? You know, do I need to, you know, make a modification here or who needs a bit harder challenge or who's sitting back to front on the box or, or whatever. <laughs> and we can start to think about, okay, do these, do these, do these people need a rest now or are they, you know, should I push them a bit harder? Um, and so we start to look outside the vehicle kind of figuratively. What are the things that you see like the tangible, you know, differences that you observe? I mean, how do you know that somebody has, is undergoing or has undergone that shift? Well, one of the easiest ways to tell is, you know, in the beginning of the course, they're, they haven't found their words yet. So it's like, and I don't know if you remember, because we've been, you know, you and I have been doing this for a really long time, but if you remember what it was like at the very beginning when you tried to teach an exercise, you can see the picture in your mind, you know what needs to happen, but just even getting the words out is challenging. You have to think on your feet. And like like you said, you know, it's like with the driving, when you're noticing how hard you're gripping the steering wheel and and whether, you know, how much you're pushing on the accelerator, 
it's hard to do anything else. You're, you don't have the attention span to do that. So um, there are times, I'll give you an example here. There is, there's one student I'm thinking in particular in week 12. So this three months in. I want to start to see in week 12 that they're not struggling to find their words. And when I see a student in a teaching practical who who's still trying to find their words, and the, the way that you can maybe imagine this best is pretend you were the client on the reformer and you have an instructor who hasn't quite figured out how to cue the exercise. So you're hanging out in a pose waiting for the, <laughs> the instruction and the instructor is just struggling to find out, to, to figure out the words. So my, my feedback in this particular situation, I'm thinking of this one student who I had a couple months ago, and I said to her in her feedback, you need to practice. Your clients were hanging out, waiting in a weird pose, waiting for you to tell them what to do with their hand, what to do with the springs. So um, that in Pilates where... 99% of what you're doing is talking, giving instructions. That to me is one of the biggest uh, skills. And that's actually the first skill that we teach in the course. We start module one with cueing. Cueing is effective communication. And it's not just communication because you've likely been to a teacher who doesn't communicate very well or very effectively or very efficiently. So my job, our job on the team is to not just to get you to communicate, but to communicate efficiently, to communicate effectively. And that takes practice. So that part is just, to me, pure mechanics. It's just reps in. You need to be, it's like memorizing your social security number or your phone number. There's no thinking about it. You can just do it. I know my phone number from when I was four, you know, um, that's just practice. So that's kind of the chaos end of the bank of the river, right? It's like we would, where, when you're just learning, and I do remember that formative stage in my own teaching where I was just like, I just don't know what's going on here. I'm, I'm like four inches above my head in water here. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't yeah, have you, control over this They look this like situation. they're drowning. Yeah. They look like they're drowning in thoughts. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what what happens for a lot of people, and this is what happened for me certainly, is you progress from there to a more rigid place. And what I've seen like countless times and done it myself countless times is give the same formulaic instructions to clients, even when they've already done the thing you're about to tell them to do. It's like, okay, we're going to do the hundred. So everybody put on three springs, put your foot bar down and grab your straps and lie down on And it's like, they're already, they've already done it, dude. Like, why are you, why are you telling to, everyone's already lying in the position, you know, <laughs> like, why are you telling them to do this thing? Uh, and so, you know, so how do we, and I think the middle, right, so the, the chaos end is like drowning, don't know what to say, don't have the, the tools, don't, or can't access the tools quickly enough to, you know, to give useful instructions that help the client actually know what to do. The rigid bank of the river is where we basically just go through the exact same rote formula that, you know, that has no regard for whether the clients actually are following those instructions or already did it 60 seconds ago or 
whatever. It's just the same pre-recorded message that comes out and plays every time you teach that exercise. And so what does paddling the canoe down the middle of the river and not bumping into either bank look like? Yeah. I think rigidity, so let me back up a little bit. One problem that I see with with the um, younger teachers in training is that they're thinking in the future, right? So they don't have enough bandwidth to be fully present. And they're thinking in the future because they're they're wondering, what am I going to teach next? What layer, what exercise am I going to teach next? So they're in the future. My, in my mind, people who are teachers who are too rigid, they're thinking in the past. They're just running off of a script and not being in the present. So for me, being able to find that middle ground between rigid rigidity and chaos is just being present, right? It would be just like paddling a canoe. You've got to have your eyes open. You need to be able to scan. You've got to be present. You've got to know what's um, right in front of you in the moment. And being in the moment is where um, you can make smart choices. You can make real choices about how long to keep somebody in an exercise. So in my mind, rigidity would look like any teacher. I see this with um, oftentimes with uh, more novice teachers, but I also see this with um, teachers who are kind of stuck in their ways, where it's just like, in this exercise, we are going to do 10 reps, period. It's just 10 reps. I'm like, really? Why? (laughs) Why? Or, you know, we're going to stay here I've always taught, I'm going to teach this exercise and progressions. And in this progression, we're going to stay here for five reps. And in this progression, we're going to stay here for five reps. It's like, why? And one, one thing that I say to my students is, maybe you have a class of advanced clients or clients who are regulars. It doesn't make any sense for you to take them through the very first progressions at all, because you can start somewhere else. And that to me is like, that's rigidity when you're just thinking in the past. You're thinking you're using a script and you're not making smart choices in the moment with the people in front of you. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think we're all – I think that's just a sort of a natural part of habit formation, right, is we – once you do something a bunch of times, it's like you just feel this kind of compulsion to do it. And we can harness that for good when we – do things like develop a habit to always brush our teeth at a certain stage of the day, or it's like you just feel a compulsion to brush your teeth. And it's like, until you do it, like that, uh, that you can't scratch that itch any other way. And so I think, you know, so I think that happens in, well, that certainly happened to me in Pilates teaching as well is like, oh, I kind of had those little sequences that I would teach that I knew worked well, kind of from a programming standpoint, you know, with minimizing changes in the position and whatever. And so you would have like three or four exercises that I would always teach in the same sequence with the same number of reps. And it was just like, as soon as I thought, oh, I'll teach these four exercises, like, bam, the whole script like just came out like a ticker tape out of my mouth. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was almost... It was almost like painful for me to even think about missing out one of those steps or prolonging one of the steps or, you know, or changing the order because it was like, but that's not the routine, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not the routine. Um, so how do, because, all right, so there, you know, we, we're trying to not go running from one side of the river to the other or paddling from one side of the river to the other and 
there's a dynamic balance to be struck and we want to be present, you know, like present in the moment and present in the room with the clients. Like, so our attention is focused. And I think when we're present in teaching, our attention is focused outside ourself. It's focused on the clients, right? So we're looking at the clients and how are they doing with this exercise and are they in the right position and are, are they struggling physically? Do they have the range of motion? Are they getting fatigued? Are they looking confused? You know, whatever it might be. And then we make adjustments to our cues or to our programming based, like if we look around the room and 90% of the people can't even get into the start position, we don't just keep feeding out the ticker tape, you know, we go, oh, maybe we'll do a different version of this today. My bad. Let's put all, put the foot down bar, two more rungs. Okay, that's better. Sorry about that. Um, so, so we can be more present by focusing on the clients. And in order to do that, we have to largely automate the, the mechanical process of teaching, right? So we can't, you can't be both focused on the clients and thinking, oh crap, what exercise am I going to teach, ne- teach next, right? Or how do I cue the hundred or, you know, how many springs are for footwork or whatever. So we have to largely automate those skills. So, and yet when we overly automate those skills, we become rigid and we don't focus on the client because we always teach the hundred this particular way, <laughs> right? Even when we see that half the room is struggling or half the room are like bored, you know, and like we could do a much harder version straight away. So, so how do, how do we come to, you know, thread that needle? How do we come to, to paddle in the middle of the river as opposed to, you know, going one way or the other? Well, I think one easy way, well, I guess what I'm thinking about here is that, you know, it helps to get client feedback because maybe you have clients, all of your clients love the same routine. You know, that aren't there, surely there are people out in the world that love the order of the mat one through 37 and that's what they want to do. That's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a massive fan of routine. I always do the same workout, you know, for a decade I've done the same five exercises, but, and I, I love the way Heath teaches. He always teaches the same workout. Um, <laughs> she sure does. <laughs> so I'm not really, I'm not talking about doing the same programming. I'm talking about like literally saying the exact same word salad, you know, every time you teach, like, it's like, if you like did a transcript of me teaching my class last week and then did a transcript and then superimposed one over the other, it would be basically identical, right? Like the actual words, the, the everything would be the same, right? It's like, well, why not just take a video recording and you know, play that back. So it's not so much the programming I'm thinking of. It's like, I don't have any problem with, with say a classical situation where you're teaching the same exercises in the same order every week for 10 years. I don't have a problem with that. But I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking about more is the nuance within that where you see, okay, this week Mary's struggling in the rollover. So what am I going to say or do differently right now? That's going to help her, you know, in the moment. Well, that is a, to me, that is a basic skill of being a good teacher, which is if you are present with your clients and you can see that the cue that you are using, that you've always used, that has worked 99.9% of the time, if it's not landing with one of your clients, you need to change the cue. One really good example of this is um, 
I have some students who really want to challenge themselves into not demonstrating while they're teaching. So, you know, we, if you, sometimes you'll see, you'll see teachers who are doing the thing along with the class, right? The whole time. And, and then on the other hand, I have some students who want to just be talking and not doing, they're just talking the whole time. And, you know, we teach online and our students are learning online teaching skills. And for my, for my students who never want to go to their machine, they're trying to stay in front of their screen and just talk, talk their, their clients through the, the program. One, of the, one bit of feedback I like to give is if your cue is not working and you see that your, your clients are not doing what it is you're asking them to do, that is a sign for you to change your cue and or to go to your mat or to your machine and to show them because that's the universe telling you that you need to change your script, right? So, and again, that's part of being present. It all just boils down to being present and teaching the people in front of you. And I think that, you know, even that can be over time automated, right? Because you, after you've taught, a hundred classes, a thousand classes, 5,000 classes, you've start to see, you know, every possible combination of levels of ability in your class. And you realize, okay, for most people, this verbal set of instructions that I've refined over a year works, right? But for some subset of people, they're not going to, that's not going to compute for them. But when I hop on the reformer and just show them, they're like, okay, great. I can do that. No problem. So that if I both say the words and demonstrate at the same time, like 99.9% of people are going to get it on any given day. So that then becomes an automated thing that anytime you teach that exercise, you both use that word track that you've developed and demonstrate at the same time. And other exercises, you might find that 99.9% of people get it without the demonstration. You don't need to demonstrate. Uh, So you don't bother demonstrating those exercises unless there's a particular person in that room that's just not, you know, able to comprehend what you, you know, what you want through a verbal instruction. So we can automate more and more of that process, but there still always has to be some level of, I guess, kind of manual override of that automation because on any given day someone might limp in with a sore knee or there might be a new person in your class or somebody who's come from the you know Natalie's class on Tuesday and Natalie teaches this exercise differently you know or or something and and so there always has to be some capacity to go oh you know what this isn't working right now so let's do this other thing whether the the other thing might be a different cue a different spring setting a different exercise choice you know a different range of motion you know whatever it might be so how do you you know like what do you just say you're 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 teaching and you're you're setting up an exercise and you're saying hey everyone we're going to do whatever exercise it might be so you know, put on X number of springs and put your foot bar in this position and whatever. And, you know, at what, and so if you see somebody who's not quite doing what you say, right? So, I mean, a classic one would be, say, everyone, everybody, we're going to do back rowing. So sit down and put on one spring, sit on your carriage facing the pulleys and someone sits down facing the foot bar, right? And you're like, okay, 
I'm pretty sure you're not going to have success in this exercise, you know, <laughs> unless I change something here. <laughs> so at what point, you know, but all right, so there's that, right? That's a really obvious one. Like, okay, this person's not going to get the benefit of this exercise. They're facing 180 degrees backwards, right? And they'll be just going, how come this is just not working my back? I can't figure it out, you know? <laughs> but then there's, then there's like a much more minor thing. We say, okay, everybody, we're going to do footwork. So, you know, put on three springs, lie down on your back, toes in the bar, heels underneath in a Pilates V, right? And then like three people in the room put their heels on the bar, right? And I mean, everybody listening to this is going, yep, seen that a million times. Yep. <laughs> right? And and you're like, oh my goodness, what part of toes on the freaking bar, you know, doesn't make sense in your, <laughs> in your brain. But it's like, well, that just seems to be a normal human thing. Like a lot of, maybe they didn't hear it or whatever. Um, and so at what point do you think, oh, that was a bad cue. I need to give a better cue for these people. And at what point do you think, huh, I've just not chosen the right exercise for this person. I, they need a different version. Like maybe you say, okay, we're going to, you know, do, I don't know, um, the stomach massage, you know, the world's most popular exercise to teach in a group class. And you're going, okay, everybody, you know, wriggle to the, towards the front of your carriage, you know, put your feet up on the bar. And it's like, there's someone in there just cannot get their feet onto the bar. It's like, it's, they look like a nine-month pregnant woman trying to, you know, squeeze into a supercar or something. It's just like, you're like, okay, at what point it's like, there's no cue that's going to help this person. I've just chosen the wrong exercise for them or I need to change the foot bar and put it all the way down or something. So at what point do you think, okay, I've just need to, I need to change my mode of cueing from verbal to demonstration or I need to just you know, maybe just give a slight correction to this person. Like maybe I'm just going to cue everyone. I'll just go around and give this person a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a different correction. Or maybe it's like, oh, whoops, I chose the wrong exercise here. Like how, how do you sort of go to differentiate between those? I'm going um, to channel Heath Lander here. Shout out, Heath. So one way that you can get really good at uh, teaching is to teach the same program over and over again. That is an excellent way to do it. When you do that, you can start to forget about the program and you can start to teach to the people in front of you because you don't have to worry about your program. So one of the best pieces of advice that I learned from Heath that I don't think is really obvious because I think oftentimes, and I see this with our students too, as an aside, let me just say, what happens after week 15 is that some of the students start to veer towards chaos because they've gotten really good at the mechanics of teaching. And now all of a sudden they want to introduce 20 props to the bed and they want to do all these crazy creative things and they start to head back towards chaos. And my job as a teacher is to kind of nudge them back towards <laughs> the middle of the river. So... But going back to Heath's big lesson is don't change your program. Do it 500 times because when you are able to teach the same program, you begin to find those little trouble spots and you can start to experiment with different ways of cueing things. You, If you are teaching to a variety of human beings, you're going to have, like you said, you're going to have your regular clients coming in with an injury. You're going to have your regular clients, they're going to be pregnant at some point. You're, you know, if you're working in a studio, hopefully um, one of the best ways to be a better teacher is to teach 
beginner clients. I really feel strongly about that because they will put you through your paces and you're going to have to learn how to say things seven different ways. Shout out Adam McAtee for, for saying that too. So one of the best ways to get better, teach the same programs. Maybe have three to five go-to programs and teach it. And actually when, when, I, um, when I write feedback to our students at Breathe, I say to almost every single one of them, this is a great program. My advice to you is to teach it again and again and again, because when you can just teach it with your eyes closed, riding on a unicycle backwards, juggling a ball, that gives you opportunity to figure out how to troubleshoot all of the, the variables that come in when you teach human beings live. Yeah. So that's, that's my, that's my advice. What do you think? Oh yeah, I think the it is such a such a trap and such an easy and pleasant trap to fall into that as soon as you master a thing, like oh, I can teach this sequence without really thinking about it. All of a sudden, and I think this is just normal human behavior, it's like, oh, that's boring now, right? It's like watching reruns of a show Unless it's like some kind of comfort show that you've, you know, watched as a kid or, you know, something like that. Like, you know, when you see that movie for the second time, third time, it's like, yeah, there can be some degree of pleasure involved in it, but it's never as good as the first time. The first time is always, you know, because there's the unknown, right? There's, it's more stimulating. We don't know what the ending is going to be. And I think that we can, I certainly fall into this trap and I see, like you say, a lot of people fall into it. It's like, okay, well, as soon as I can teach that sequence without really thinking about it, I get bored and I want something more interesting. But your clients are not bored. Like they need another 10,000 repetitions before they get bored because they're actually having a physical experience while they're doing this, whereas you're not having a physical experience by and large, you're just you know, you're having a more cerebral experience. And so, yes, you've taught this same sequence a hundred times before, and it does kind of get the same. But for them, it's like they're, it's like if you had a massage every week for a hundred weeks, you probably wouldn't get sick of it. Although the person massaging you might get bored, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and so I, I think that like, the the thing that I've found that has just in, enabled me to let go of that uh, and not fall into that trap is that is remembering that I'm here to perform a service for these people, and it's not about me. Like it totally irrelevant whether I'm bored or not. Like that's got absolutely nothing to do with anything. I'm here to help these people achieve their result and have the experience that they want to have, and. It's like, well, imagine the pilot who flies you from, you know, LA to Phoenix. You know, it's like, you don't want them to try a different route this time. You know, <laughs> you don't want them to go, oh, what if we turn off the two outside engines and see what happens there? You know, <laughs> like you want them to do it the exact same way they did it the last 999 times because you know that's the way that's going to get you touching down safely, right? And it might be yawningly boring for that pilot, but you don't give a shit, right? <laughs> like, um, so... I think uh, that is such an important thing that we don't go veering off into like, you know, 99 props, 99 new modifications, 99 new exercise, you know, like constantly coming up with variety. It's like clients 
by and large, don't crave variety. They don't. Yeah, I mean, personal trainers, it's a trope. I mean, I I put a post up on Instagram a couple of weeks back. It's like the, the stuff you see on Instagram often where it's like very inventive and exciting. It's like, that's great. It's great to get great ideas and to be inspired and to think, oh, that's a cool way of using a reformer. I never thought of that. And shout out to the people who are pushing the boundaries and making up new stuff. You know, I think that's awesome. But when it comes to the day-to-day just like doing the work of working with clients, it's like the people who are getting the best results are the ones teaching the same shit day in, day out, just choose 10 exercises that really target all of the major areas of the body and just drill that shit, you know, again and again and again and again and again and again. And your clients will get really freaking strong, really flexible (laughs) and really good at the moves. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think there are ways to introduce novelty as a teacher in your teaching practice because there have definitely been moments in my life where I'm so bored and um, like just not feeling it. But there are ways to do it within a structure where you can still be very client centered. You know, so one example would be I. I have some mat programs that work really well. And then when I feel like it, I will say, you know what, I'm going to take this mat program and and I'm going to insert the magic circle or add some hand weights or, you know, just ways. And, and really, I'm very honest. I think I said this to you last time we recorded is when I use a prop, I'm really clear, like, this is for my pleasure. <laughs> this is for me uh, and my pleasure because I'm bored. Uh, but we're going to do all the same stuff, but we're going to try it with the magic circle. Or I'm going to use the same reformer program, but we're going to try it with the foot bar lower or a different spring setting and explore in those kinds of ways. You know, I I, I have fallen into the trap and that was part of my burnout um, early on was feeling like I needed to come up with new content essentially for my my teaching practice every week. And it's like, it didn't occur to me that perhaps maybe you know, I introduced an exercise to my clients last week, and then I never gave them an opportunity to practice it again. And and so, you know, my rule of thumb at this point is like about 80-20. I feel like 80-20 is kind of like a rule of thumb for just about everything in life, but 80-20, like 80% familiar and 20% new and novel. And that way it, it serves... I think it's a really good, it serves everybody. I, I don't have to remember 100% of a new program and my clients get to practice something that was tough or fun the last time we saw each other. Right. And they get much more uh, sense of progress when they do the same thing multiple weeks in a row and they notice, oh, now I can do another five reps than what I did last time or now I can reach all the way to my toes or now I can add an extra half a spring or or whatever it might be. Whereas if you just teach a completely different set of exercises each week, they don't actually, they may or may not be getting stronger and more flexible, but you actually, they don't have any yardstick to measure it by. So there's less, that progress is less tangible to them. And for the vast majority of people, I think, what is most exciting about exercise is that sense of progress, that sense of getting better, of like, oh, I can do this thing that I couldn't do. Like now I, I, I can touch my toes, I can do a push-up, I can add an extra spring, I can do a teaser, I can whatever it might be. And all of the, you know, there are so many other benefits that come with exercise, but I think that the enjoyment of the process itself is largely driven for most people 
by that sense of achievement and, and accomplishment that comes with tangible evidence that they are in fact getting better. Yeah. And that's something that our students um, are still trying to figure out. So, you know, I was saying that week 15 is my favorite week. And then as they start to head towards week 20, a good number of them, they just start, their programs just get wild. Like really, really creative, really creative. And then I have to pull it back a little bit and say, and tell them these things, you know, like you have to put yourself into your client's shoes. You might be bored with the program that you've been teaching all this time, but your clients are not you. They're not feeling the same thing that you are. And they, you know, in order for them to feel achievement and to notice progress and to get into a state of flow, you can't just throw a whole new program at them every single time. I mean, you, you could, you certainly could, it's not wrong, but I don't think it's as beneficial as being able to give your clients that sense of continuity so that they can practice something and get better and better. Because it's kind of like, you know, in, in a good program, in one good program, you've got these peaks and troughs of expending energy and, and having, you know, moments of being really intense and then having some moments of recovery. And I feel it's the same way with mental energy too. If you're constantly throwing new ultra creative stuff at your clients, their brain never rests because they're, they never can get into a sense of flow like you can if you were doing feet and straps or footwork because they're waiting, they're learning something brand new, right? They're learning something brand new. They're learning how to balance on the bed while they're squeezing the circle and they've got one strap on their thigh. You know what I mean? It's like, that's a lot of mental energy. Um, So being able to give your clients those peaks and troughs mentally as well, I think is really important because flow only happens in my mind, like if you don't need to think about what it is you're doing. Right. Well, flow comes when there, and flow comes when there's high challenge and high skill. Yeah. And so it's hard to get in flow when you have very low skill in a new movement and you're just learning, okay, so hold on, I'll put my foot here and my hand here and how many springs do I put on and where does the strap go? And like, it, that's a very sort of cognitive, um, you know, process. But once you know all of those things and you've done the move like a hundred times and now Natalie says, okay, let's take off a half spring and see how you go. And you're like, oh crap, that's really wobbly, you know, and, but you've got, you've got the skill and there's a high challenge that is just about at your maximum level of capacity. That's with, and you, and then you have enough time to, to just play and repeat, you know, do repetitions to, to practice it. That's when flow ensues. So, all right. So it's it's necessary for us all, I think, as we learn to go through that process of, you know, jerkily accelerating at ten miles an hour in the in the supermarket car park as we learn when to press the clutch and when to press the brake and when to pull the gear shift and when to etc. And that's just a normal part of learning a new skill. The clients have the same process. They have to learn where to put their foot, where to put their hand, how to adjust the springs. Those are all kind of the basic mechanics of what we do. And after we – and the best the best way to master those as quickly as possible so that they become relatively automatic and you don't have to think about them is to do the same one, like do the – 
teach the same workout or you know, very similar workouts you know, multiple dozens, scores or hundreds of times. And so when you when you then do teach the workout, we don't want to 100% automate that process because then we come, become robotic and we just keep spouting out the same irrelevant instructions, even if the clients have completely stopped exercising and given up in exhaustion and they're all just lying there panting red-faced on the reformer, we're just still yelling out, you know, and do another three, two, you know, et cetera. Um, so there's some level of automation of those skills that is optimal, but that's then allows us to be present by which we mean just focusing your attention on the clients in the room and observing how are they doing with this movement? Are they in the right position? Are they struggling like strength wise, range of motion wise? Do they not understand what you're asking them to do? Um, you know, do they need more support, more challenge, whatever it might be? And then adjusting, still teaching your basically automated program but just sort of adjusting maybe the difficulty up a notch for this person or adding in a demonstration for that person um, where it's I don't know let's go with your rule of thumb and say it's 80% automated 20% you know customized would you agree with that or not yeah one well, I was thinking about this as you were talking you know about being intentional in the words that you use so for instance if you were I used to do this. Sometimes I still do this. It's just out of habit. It's out of automation. Um, imagine teaching a group of regulars. And why do we, when we teach a group of regulars, why do we go through all the steps of queuing with our regular clients? We don't have to so do that. Times. Yes. <laughs> That's automation. I know you've been in here, like we've been in this class together every week for the last 50 weeks, but what I'm going to tell you here is the same thing I told you on day one, which is lie down on your back, take a deep breath in, you know, as you exhale, blah, 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 blah. And there's nothing wrong with cueing people to breathe. I think that can be really helpful for people to relax and become present, but giving people step-by-step -step instructions about which muscle to activate or, or even just like we're going to do footwork. So, you know, and then you just reel off the instructions about how to get into the position for footwork. Okay. It's like, okay, well, if you've done that the last 50 weeks in a row, if they're still not getting it. You're a bad teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and more likely they are getting it. And as soon as you said, we're going to do footwork, they already got into the position. And then you're just still reeling off the instructions like, 15 seconds after they've already done it well yeah so um it's actually so the, the 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 criticism and the the critical thinking to me about why do we why do we go through all the steps of queuing for our our regular clients this is actually something i heard anula myberg talk about in a podcast i think it was a podcast where she was like let's say that i'm a math teacher and you came to me to learn addition and then for the next three years, we're just doing the same math problem over and over again. Like something is wrong, right? And, and so one of the things that I've experienced in her class, so she typically teaches instructors. So the people who are coming to her group classes are typically all instructors. And one of the things that's so 
liberating for me is when we get ready. You know, if we're going to, for instance, if we're going to warm up with footwork or if we're going to cool down with uh, short spine, she just says, go do your footwork. Go do your short spine. And it's so nice. I've gotten to a point well, where I don't want to. that's what Joseph wanna... used to say, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, I really love it. In fact, there are times, I'm just going to say this and be a little bit judgy. There are times when I'm on, I've been on specific platforms where there are recorded Pilates classes. And I will just put, put it on mute because I have such a low tolerance for too much talking. Mm. So, uh, you know, challenging that, many of us teach in a situation where it's not the same exact group of people in the room every week for 50 weeks. And there might be some kind of cadre of people who are regulars. And maybe you've got 10 people in your group mat class and five of them are regulars. And on any given day, you know, three of them have been, you know, five of them have been with you for months or years. Three of them have been with you for a couple of weeks and two of them are brand new, right? So you've got people who, if you say, go do your footwork, they're just going to go do it. And other people are just going to go, what the heck are you talking? You know, I mean, we wouldn't say that in a mat class, but <laughs> go do your hundreds or go do your roll-ups or whatever. So some people are just going to stare at you like you're talking Greek and other people are going to go, yeah, sure, you know, off I go. So how do you then uh, navigate that situation uh, when you've got those people, some people who do need those step-by-step instructions and other people who really don't need them at all. Yeah. That would, you just described an open level class, right? Which is what we, which is what we teach our students at Breathe, which is how to run an open level class. And so depending on the exercise, because not every exercise I think is conducive to this style of teaching. So it's, it's dependent on the exercise. It's also dependent on you as the instructor. Some instructors prefer to have uh, control is not the right word, but I'm going to use the word control. They like to have, they like to be a, like in a conductor in an orchestra and they want people going at the same time. So if that's your style, you're going to cue everybody at the same time. But if your style is more of, you know, a casual open level instructor like me, <laughs> it would be, okay, we're going to do footwork right now. For those of you who know what to do, you can go ahead and get started. For those of you who are new, new to class, you're going to put your foot bar up. You're going to tack on three springs, place your, you know. So you got to be able to, if that's your style, then you need to be able to be present in the room and know what to do with everybody. And that that takes practice. It takes practice to be able to do that, to be able to juggle all those balls at the same time. What you're saying really is that the the midpoint of the river is not a point so much as a range. And there's some, you know, variance within that sort of sweet spot. You could be a bit closer to the rigid bank or you could be a little, little bit closer to the chaos bank. And both of those can work and clients will get a lot from it and go, yeah, I love that class. Fantastic. Perfect balance of everything. And so you might be the instructor who likes to have everybody do their feet in straps in synchronization. Or you might just be like, hey, everyone, we're going to do feet in straps, go for it. Oh, by the way, Mary, this is your first day. I'll show you how to do it. Um, and then it's just like you can't walk around the room because everyone's just swinging their legs wildly <laughs> and out of out of synchronization. And and both of those can be fine. Both of those can be, can be you know, absolutely great. Oh, totally. It 
it's it's to your taste. Um, I actually I can't remember. I think it was a student not too long ago. It was such a wonderful moment with this student. She said, she said to me, um, "What what do you do when you're looking around the room and everybody's doing something different?" And I just had this big grin on my face, and I said, "That's what I'm aiming for." When I teach a class, a group class, I don't want to see anybody in synchrony. I love, I know I'm doing my job. This is just me. I know I'm doing my job when I see eight people doing eight different things because they're, in my mind, they're doing what is right for them. And it takes it takes practice. It takes a bit of tolerance, especially if you were raised in a Pilates environment where it was expected that people do things in synchrony. I actually know teachers, I have colleagues who do things in synchrony. You know, they're counting out loud. They want people to stay with their count. Totally fine, totally valid. It's it's one way to do it. Whereas with me, I prefer that people, I like to see chaos. I like to edge up to chaos because that's exciting to me and it's, you know, it's stimulating to me to see that. But more than anything, it's because that I know that I've given people options and I have given people permission to take the option that is right for them. Your practice, your body, you do it. So in a perfect world, everybody's doing something different. And for an outsider, that may look like fucking chaos. And to me, I'm just like, I'm winning. I'm winning. This is, this is me doing my best work. And that's, that's congruent with uh, my experience of your personality outside of teaching as well. Because, for example, when we chat on this podcast, we pretty much never talk about what we're going to discuss until like the literal moment when we hit record. Uh, and you're totally fine with that. That's your comfort zone. Whereas I have other people on the podcast from time to time who are like, you know, four weeks out. They're like, okay, can you send me a list of questions and bullet points and promise you won't deviate and ask me, me anything that's not on the list? <laughs> sort of um, and so, and again, neither neither is better or worse, but it's, it's an interesting observation of your of your character. I think I'd like to just unpack what you said a little bit because – I'd just like to get a little bit more context on that, right? So if you when when you say, okay, look around the room and see eight people and they're all doing something completely different, I'm assuming you don't mean, you know, one's doing front rowing, one's doing back rowing, one's doing elephant, one's doing footwork, one's having a rest, one's doing ball squats against the wall, you know, whatever. Uh, so, you know, what do you mean when you say you see people doing, you know, different things? Oh, that's a good question because, yeah, I can totally see people taking that the wrong way. What I mean is when there is an exercise, especially one that is not, that is complicated with multiple choreographical layers, or if it's an exercise that's quite challenging, let's use snake as an example, right? Snake is an advanced exercise. It's pretty hairy. It takes a, it takes a lot of strength and coordination. So what I mean when I say I, I've seen eight different, uh, people doing eight different kinds of things is I am seeing eight people, eight human beings doing their version of snake. I might, that might look like some people putting their feet on the floor, maybe some people putting their feet on the, um, the foot platform or a platform extender or a box. It might be some people with the foot bar, having their feet on the foot bar low or the foot bars high. You know, like different variations 
I'm giving people different options. I'm progressing the exercise. Um, let me back up a little bit because there's this wonderful metaphor that I learned from Naomi, one of our trainers, and I don't know who she got it from, but uh, the best way I can describe it is I am driving a bus and all of my clients are on the bus with me. We're all together. We all ride together. That's a Heath Lander thing. We all ride together. And on this bus, we have a certain route. We start here. We're going to end here. I'm driving the bus and my clients, the bus riders, they get to decide what stop they're going to get off the bus. And some people are going to get off earlier and some people are going to make it all the way to the end of the line. But we're all right. We all get to ride together and people get to choose when they get off the bus. So no, I'm not teaching eight different exercises or allowing people to do push-ups when I said footwork. It's, <laughs> it's one exercise that I've given a, pro uh, a set of progressive options to and different body positions and choices and that sort of thing so that people can then decide the right combination for themselves in that moment for that day. And the the in this metaphor the bus route goes from standing beside your reformer to doing the full snake with the foot bar all the way up and the stops along the way correspond to okay stop number one might be feet on the floor um, stop number two might be feet on a box next to the reformer stop number three might be feet on the on the platform stop number four might be foot on the foot bar but the foot bar all the way down etc and so uh, each person gets to uh, stick with whatever version is best for them, you know, is is in their optimal kind of level of challenge where it's difficult but achievable for them to do today, right? And so we're all heading towards doing the full snake and we may or may not ever get there and it doesn't really matter, but that's that's the progression. It's not like, oh, Mary do footwork, John do push-ups, Andrew do the roll-up. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and we've all had we've all had that person in class, I imagine, where you like say, "Hey, everyone, do footwork," and then they just and they're, they're putting their feet in the straps, and and it's like they know what feet in straps are, and they just like they just come and do their own workout. Like I've had that person a few different times, <laughs> um, uh, and you know, how, I, I, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about here. So yeah, I I agree, and I I just do want to put in a of. I guess, an endorsement for the synchronized movement side of things. I mean, my natural kind of character, Natalie, is I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I, I like the edge of chaos. Um, that's where I'm much more comfortable. Um, but there is research on synchronized movement when humans in a group move in synchronization, it actually fosters group cohesion and fellowship and a sense of goodwill uh, towards the other people. And that's why the army does marching, right? They, they There's absolutely zero, you think about like the modern army, it's like fighting in the Ukraine or whatever. It's like there is zero marching involved in that, right? In the actual combat part. The, so the marching is not to do with actually being good at fighting. It's to do with building team spirit and building coherence and the ability to function as a unit. And so you feel more sense of camaraderie when you move in synchronization with other humans. And so I think there's a, you know, that's, there's a, there's a real tangible 
probably just psychosocial benefit to people to come and move in synchronization with a group of basically complete strangers, but who become friends simply because you've done legs in straps together <laughs> in synchronization. No, that's an excellent point. And I think you're totally right. And I know that for a lot of people beyond the price point, they like to take group classes because it's a vibe. It is a vibe to do, to share the energy and to be in class. And I don't do it very often. I used to when I used to teach more synchronized movement. But one of the things that I used to like to say is, okay, let's all do this as a community. That that was my cue for let's try to do this together. Like I said, I haven't used that cue in a long time. But um, when I do use that cue, that's the cue that I like to use is instead of like, and with me now, it's like, no, let's all, let's all do this as a community. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think this has been a, a good, good chat. And uh, I hope the listeners have found it helpful. Is there anything you want to finish with? No, go Google that image because once you see it, you can never unsee it. It's so, I think about, I meditate on that image because anytime I, you know, it's good for parenting, right? Like it's really good for parenting. It's just, it's good for so many things. It's good for relationships. And I, I often, uh, I tend to be really rigid in my normal life. And it's funny that you, I love that you notice that I like to improv with you in these podcasts. I was talking with Viren last night, Viren, our creative marketing director. Um, and I was telling him about our, our little podcast and how I just show up and I'm not sure what we're doing. And I was like, yeah, I think Raf's bumper stickers should read, let's fuck around and find out. Cause that's how I feel like, that's what I feel like it is to work with you. It's just like, yeah, let's find out. And I'm like, okay. And this is the one part of my life where I feel like, yeah, I can, I can do that. I'm happy to, I'm happy to be brave and just, just see where we go. Huh, that's interesting. And now you mention it, like I'm quite rigid in other areas of my life. Like I have an invariable routine around bedtime or exercise or eating, you know, that I always have the same thing for lunch, you know, like seven What do you have for lunch? Uh, microwaved uh, frozen diced vegetables with tuna and some Louisiana hot sauce. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I learned something new about you. <laughs> and I've chosen it purely based on macronutrient composition, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the hot sauce just for a little bit of flavor. Yeah. I have the same thing for lunch every almost every day too, actually. What do you have? I have um roasted salmon, roasted veggies and brown rice. Um and yeah, it's for the nutrients as well. Although I do, I do vary the roasted vegetables. The salmon's always the same, but the vegetables, it just depends on what I have in my fridge. So like today I had broccoli, carrots, and shallots. I sometimes vary the vegetables if the if I buy a different brand of uh, diced frozen veggies because they're out of the normal brand. <laughs> <laughs> You and I are very similar in some in some respects. <laughs> and I, I suppose that, you know, many of us have that sort of dichotomy where we have, you know, quite rigid in some areas of our life and quite chaotic in other areas of our life. So yeah, that's that's interesting. I think maybe characterizing somebody as a chaotic person or a rigid person. I mean, I guess 
there are people who are probably more chaotic in more areas and people who are more rigid in more areas. But I think overall, my guess would be it'd be on a normal distributed curve and most of us would be a bit of both in different areas of our life. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think a, so. You're a psychologist, right? You probably know this a lot more about this than I do. I have not been touching psychology for so long. Um, but yeah, I think I think we're on a bell curve. And I think most people are probably a mix of both. I, I think my family would argue and say that I'm definitely rigid in almost everything in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and the, t- the two places that I'm not rigid, I was talking with Heath about this, is like, I'm not rigid in Pilates. I am so laid back in Pilates. And it's funny because I feel like Pilates in general is a very rigid practice. It can be. Um, and like, I'm spending all of my time, my whole career is on like trying to make Pilates a little bit more flexible and agile. And, you know, it's, it's for me, it's it's for my own selfish agenda. Um, but it's the one place that I, I feel like I want to just be really flexible and not, and not have so much rigidity. But yeah, everywhere else in my life, like my kids think I'm the heavy in the house. I'm, I'm, they, mm. they, if they want something, they go ask their dad because the answer for me is always almost invariably no. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's, that's your job as a parent most of the time because often they're asking something like, can I get a tattoo or, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, just in terms of even this concept of rigidity and, and chaos or spontaneity would be the more kindly way of saying it. <laughs> um that I've I've noticed a lot that often just after we turn off the recording on this podcast, whether it's with you or or a, another guest, often like moments of gold happen where you stop recording and then it's like oh you know la 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 la. It's like ah oh, damn it! I wish we <laughs> I wish we wish we'd captured that, and I've been kind of sort of pondering on it about why that happens. And I think it's because we we have, when we're talking, you know, and we're recording with, even though we we both are quite relaxed and spontaneous in the way that we approach this, it's like, well, we do have kind of a topic and it's not just a general social catch-up and there is some actual direction and purpose to, to the conversation. And we're trying to make it of value to people who are listening. And when we sort of turn off record, then it genuinely is a social interaction and there's no real consequences of what we say and, you know, in terms of people won't judge it as being useful or unuseful or or whatever. And so often it it is that bit more spontaneous, but often what I've observed is that even more useful things come out in that, in those moments. So, um, yeah, it was interesting that we kind of finished, but then kept recording here and uh, <laughs> had this interesting little uh, addendum conversation. So thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what happens when you kind of let your guard down. Uh, I was telling Viren that um, one of the things that, okay, this is totally an aside. You can cut it out if you need to, but um, I watch. You know, we don't cut things out on this podcast. <laughs> like We've right. literally never cut anything that's out right. of a single episode. Yeah. That's true. I'm going to I'm going to um embarrassingly admit that I watch a reality show called called Sister Wives. Do you know Sister Wives? No. It is a it is a reality show based in America about a man who has 
four wives, and 18 children. I know. Um, uh, I'm not going to... Are they Mormons? Uh, they are um, FLDS, so Fundamental um, Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints, yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. Uh, I was corrected by a friend of mine who's Latter-day Saint. They said they don't like to be called Mormons. That's right. And, and there's a separation between FLDS and LDS. But um, my point is not to... Well, and I don't want to give any spoilers because they're in like season 18 and like shit's going down. But um, my point, I was telling this to Viren yesterday is because um, he, I was sitting on my sofa and I was just like slouching and like holding my head up and like just talking to him. And he's like, let's have you record like this. And I was like, well, I can't do that because I have all my tech. It can't fit on my sofa. But what I was telling him was like, there's value to being really comfortable and unguarded because um you just you have more energy to just like be yourself and and all the good stuff happens then and in sister wives what they were talking about is like so the cameras follow them around their house and um and in their lives but when the when the tv channel wants them to like spill their guts they have them in a living room set and just sitting very comfortably and and the these these people say themselves like as soon as I, my butt gets on that sofa, like I just spill my guts. Uh, so I feel like there's something to it, to what you're just saying. It's like when we start recording or when we don't think the camera's watching, like we just kind of, that's where all the good stuff happens, which goes back to our original point about getting your reps in, getting all that technical stuff out of the way and teaching. Because when you do that, you can relax into it and all of your mental resources can be funneled into whatever it is that needs to happen. You know, you can tell a story, you can tell a joke, you can, you know, it's like yeah. once you know how to drive, you can listen to your podcast. The, 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 the teaching becomes your comfort zone. Yeah. And so you, the moment your butt hits that reformer studio and that <laughs> studio. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's your safe place. Good talk. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing, and applying it until you own it. 
This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.